This is Spotlight on Indigenous Relocation. Today, about 7 in 10 Indigenous people in the United States live in cities. After the federal government launched the American Indian Relocation Program in the 1950s to move people away from rural tribes. It's uprooting you. It's, it's actually grabbing you and putting you someplace else. I'm Anton Troyer, host of Spotlight on Indigenous Relocation from Call to Mind at APM. Ahead, my discussion with Indigenous experts about how the abandoned relocation program is still a factor in historical trauma today. If one person gets into a car accident, it can be traumatizing. But what if a whole community gets into a car accident? And how some Indigenous people are identifying ways to heal. Child well-being would be defined by dried salmon because that would mean that as a family, they went out to fish camp to be together and to take care of that. And that would be that healing process. Join us at the Minneapolis American Indian Center. Welcome to Spotlight on Indigenous Relocation, produced by Call to Mind, American public media's initiative to foster new conversations about mental health. I'm Anton Troyer, Ojibwe from Leech Lake and professor of Ojibwe at Bemidji State University in Minnesota. I'm also author of Everything You Wanted to Know About Indians But Were Afraid to Ask and other books. I'm at the Minneapolis American Indian Center with an indigenous panel of experts before an audience of indigenous people to delve into the ongoing effects of relocation and historical trauma. I would like to begin by acknowledging that we are on the ancestral and current homeland of the Dakota people even though Minneapolis is home to many Native people and others. Relocation was a U.S. government program designed in the 1950s to move people away from their tribal lands and culture to cities with the intent to assimilate Indigenous people into a white society. One of our panelists, Doreen Day, lived through relocation as a child. Her family was relocated from the rural Net Lake area on the Boys Fort Reservation in northern Minnesota to Cleveland, Ohio, before returning to live in St. Paul. Now Doreen is an Anishinaabe midwife, a member of the Medewiwin Society, and in the Ojibwe world, she has cultural credentials similar to having a master's in theology. She teaches and trains people in traditional practices around the upper Midwest and Canada. She's joined by Dolores, or D Subia Bigfoot, who is Caddo from Oklahoma, affiliated with the Northern Cheyenne tribe of Montana. Dee is a psychologist and director of the Indian Country Child Trauma Center and Native American programs at the University of Oklahoma College of Medicine. And Dr. Ann Bullock rounds out our panel. She is a member of the Fond du Lac Band of Lake Superior Ojibwe, she is the Chief Clinical Consultant of Family Medicine at Indian Health Service, who speaks about the intersection of historical trauma and stress on overall health. She is the Director of its Division of Diabetes Treatment and Prevention. Thank you all for coming to Minneapolis for this discussion. I wanted to take a few minutes just to help those who don't know what relocation is and what historical trauma is. I think in my experience growing up as a Native person, I had my own lived experience. I could tell you what it was like to get followed around a store or to be racially profiled. 
But I was raised by the first female native attorney in the state of Minnesota who became a tribal judge and graduating from high school, I could not have told you what tribal sovereignty was or how it worked or what government policies like relocation are. Many native people have this experience where we know what it's like to be in our own skin, but we don't always know everything that happened to bring us to this point. And I think for most Americans, we who are not native, we are often imagined and infrequently well understood. So first, what is relocation? And Doreen, maybe we could begin with you. The Bureau of Indian Affairs approached your family for the relocation program in the early 1960s with promises of a better life in Cleveland, Ohio, than you had on a rural reservation in northern Minnesota. How did the program actually affect your lives? Thank you. First of all, you have to look at my family as a very large indigenous family. Um, both of my parents spoke the Anishinaabe language, the Ojibwe language. There were three sets of children. There were the older set of children who could comprehend, articulate, and understand the language and the middle section of children who were dissuaded from learning it because of their education and then the tail end of children, five or six of us that were the youngest, where that was pretty much already removed and not used in our home. So it's, it's like taking you out of, your, of what it is that you know, of your environment, of your tie to the land. Uh, it's, it's uprooting you. It's, it's, it's actually grabbing you and putting you someplace else. So as a four-year-old experiencing that, it was very traumatic. It was traumatic for my other sisters and brothers who were along that journey with me. Um, I think the biggest thing and the tragic thing was that we did not have, we could not look outside and see our tall jack pines. We could not go racing. We couldn't do the things that we were accustomed to. And that was um, probably more painful for my older brothers and sisters. But for me, the pain was that I was in a home that was very small, in a place that was very foreign. Um, and to me, that was scary. Hmm. Thanks for being willing to share your personal story. I think a lot of times we look at government policies and we look at a data set or a law, and we don't always look at how this really affects human beings and the effect on our psychology the effect on our language, culture, community. And I, I think people who developed a policy like this were thinking of the potential financial benefit, even though it never arrived, and saw, even as they had with other policies like residential boarding schools, the idea of destroying what was native about native people, their native place, community, cohesion, that this would somehow be a favor. Um, in your experience, aside from feeling homesick, did you, did you feel personal effects? And how did you see that um, impacting other people around you? I think that my older sister and my older brother, they were the two eldest that went on that um, train to Cleveland, Ohio. They were became my caretakers as my as my father set out to try to find a job. And it was much like you see um, 
immigrants coming to the city of St. Paul or Minneapolis, when they arrive here, you see the whole family going to the grocery store. You yeah. see the whole family walking down the street. You see the, fa- the whole family, you know, shopping at Target or something like that. And that was the way that our family was. We were all stuck together. I think the biggest thing is um, it became a fear-based place. Um, Dee, what was your experience with relocation and with families who've been affected by it that you've worked with? I think the the primary way I'm you know affected is that now I'm working with families who for several generations have been removed from their historical lands or removed from where they were uh, relocated with the first relocation when they were removed from their traditional lands and um, so being in various cities whether it was you know Los Angeles or Salt Lake City or uh, Billings, where I've lived at various times, um, seeing the effect of uh, relocation and my own commitment as I developed in my professional development to create more programs and build better support and to uh, help families who uh, have been dealing with a lot of displacement and removal of children. Hmm. Yeah, it's like the old adage, it takes a village to raise a child. And then what happens when you don't have your village? And you don't have your village, yeah. Yeah, and it was probably a pretty painful experience for a lot of people. And there were beautiful and even successful efforts to try to do that. And there were a lot of casualties along the way. And what was your experience with relocation and in your professional work helping Native people, dealing with its effects. Um, What can you tell us about how this impacted you and the people you work with? Sure, thank you. So when you think about, you know, these kinds of experiences, relocation, termination, um, boarding schools, all of the the litany of difficulties that other people have experienced, and they are sequential. It's not like you can have one happen and then you recover, right? And then maybe a few years later, the next one, it's, 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 one on top of the next. And when we look at how these things affect us, you know, this series called The Mind is about mental health and, and the, the, um, you know, the risk factors for mental health problems and the risk factors for physical health problems, when it comes to st- stress and trauma, are actually, they have very similar roots. So you, you think about what it was like to go to a city and, and your description was so wonderful. Um, it's like you're always on guard because everything is new, everything is foreign, everything is potentially dangerous. So that brings those stress hormones up, you know, the kind that, you know, get your blood pressure and your heart rate going and, and, and your body needs energy in case it has to run or fight, right? The fight or flight response. Um, so those hormones are always triggered, always going, always going. Um, and then if something bad happens, as often you know, happens in, in traumatic situations, then the ability to respond gets overwhelmed. And the brain wants to say, okay, if this ever happens to us again, I want to get us out of here that much quicker. And so anything that reminds the brain of that particular traumatic episode gets programmed in in a very deep way. And the brain is always looking for anything in the environment that could be dangerous again, even if it isn't, but it somehow is reminiscent of that. So you have people with these stress hormones going all the time, constantly, constantly going, and triggered, triggered, triggered by by things that don't even 
um, necessarily relate to the original trauma. And over time, that has effects on depression, has effects on anxiety, has effects also on physical health. You mentioned you know, that I work in diabetes primarily. Same thing. When you trigger these hormones over and over again, it raises blood pressure, it raises blood sugar, it contributes to heart disease, it contributes to diabetes. Then when we take that and we think about how that gets transmitted to the next generation, the intergenerational trauma, um, all of those mechanisms continue to, to play a part, um, including in the womb and in the first few years of life, because traumatized parents then inadvertently become the, the way that gets transmitted to the next generation. So when we think about the concept of historical trauma, um, one way to look at it is to say if if one person gets into a car accident, it can be traumatizing. But what if a whole community gets into a car accident? Who's there to pick up the pieces? Who's there to, to comfort the children and help make sense of things when the parents are also traumatized? Who's there to make sense of the cultural changes, you know, the loss of cultural infrastructure, the loss of the medicine people, all of those sorts of things? So it's, it's trauma as it is on an individual level, but then it's how we understand what happens at the community level when these things happen to so many uh, people who should be there and otherwise would be there to help us through it. So when we look at historical trauma, I think the key to it is to say it is not, it's helping us understand how we got to be where we are. Why do we have the problems in our communities that we have with health and mental health and poverty? Historical trauma helps us see through that lens to make sense out of it. Um, not to, to dwell, not to say, you know, we can never get past this because that's not true, but to say, this is how we understand today. And if we understand the roots of where the problems have happened, then we know that that's going to help us to do even more healing tomorrow. I think for myself, I have nine children, and I want what most people probably want for their children. I want them to have the best chance at a long, healthy happy life. Unlike those who designed relocation, I believe that they don't have to be white to get it. Not that they could be, even if they tried. And as I think about the descriptions of historical trauma and its cascading effects, all human beings have somebody somewhere in their family tree who experienced trauma, even back to caveman days, Somebody was clunking somebody over the head with a club. And it may show up for anybody as an unexplained depression or self-destructive behavior. But when you look at periods of intense, concentrated trauma, the black experience with slavery, the native experience with genocide, residential boarding schools, and relocation, well, the problems pop up today, and they, they don't just pop up, they pop up like, popcorn. And we have a lot going on. But I'm also reminded that it's not just the trauma and the bad things that get passed forward. It's the good things too. We are more than the sum of our tragedies. I think the power that we have, not just as individuals, but collectively to carry healthy ways of solving problems can provide a potent service to our individual and collective betterment, even when we get transplanted into a totally different environment. So I'd like to shift our discussion a little bit 
to first ask, why should we talk about relocation now? So as we think about, yes, um, there's always been trauma. The example I give is tornadoes didn't just start when the term historical trauma came about, or hurricanes, or earthquakes, or war, or conflict. So there's always been some kind of uh, threat to safety, whether real or perceived. And that threat to safety you know, has us reacting in many different ways. What we had historically within our uh, tribal communities is um, this network of family. Um, so that allowed us to rely on one another and joint decision-making. We also had resources that we could call upon. But more importantly, uh, we had ceremony. And so when things got to be tense or there was a threat, then the thing that could be called upon is ceremony to prepare us. Or um, after the threat, ceremony was there to transition or uh, cleanse us to move on to the, to the next. And so there was time taken out in order to have that prayer, to have that ceremony, to have that uh, transition to the next um, way. So, you know, I was... Uh, a very young widow, and I tell you, that's a harsh transition. And, you know, with the Cheyenne Way, the things that you, you do, um, there was ceremony to help uh, make that transition to, to this, you know, from wife to widowhood. Um, but if there's so many losses and so many deaths and not enough ceremony, mm -hmm. then you feel that vulnerability. You feel that, that huge threat where you can't make decisions, where you don't have that network. And this is where we get the, the um, assaults of not feeling capable of making decisions. So, you know, when, when individuals have that ceremonial um, perspective, when they know who they are, where they come from, why they're here, how they can give that, those values that are passed from one generation to the other, um, then you see children thrive. That's Dee Subia Bigfoot, director of the Indian Country Child Trauma Center at the University of Oklahoma. That's Doreen Day, a Medeque Anishinaabe midwife and teacher of traditional practices and Ann Bullock, who is Chief Clinical Consultant of Family Medicine at Indian Health Service. I'm Anton Troyer, and we'll have more of Spotlight on Indigenous Relocation from Call to Mind.
Welcome back to Spotlight on Indigenous Relocation from Call to Mind, American Public Media's initiative to foster new conversations about mental health. I'm Anton Troyer, Ojibwe from Leech Lake and professor of Ojibwe at Bemidji State University in Minnesota. We're at the Minneapolis American Indian Center for a discussion about historical trauma through the lens of a U.S. government program to assimilate Indigenous people into a white society and break down tribal cultures. We're joined by Dolores de Subia, Bigfoot Director of the Indian Country Child Trauma Center and Native American Programs at the University of Oklahoma College of Medicine. She is Caddo of Oklahoma and affiliated with the Northern Cheyenne Tribe of Montana. Doreen Day, a Medeque and midwife, teaching and training traditional Anishinaabe practices from around the upper Midwest and Canada. She's a member of the Boys Fort Band of Ojibwe and Ann Bullock, who is Chief Clinical Consultant of Family Medicine at the Indian Health Service and Director of the Division of Diabetes Treatment and Prevention. She's a member of the Fond du Lac Band of Lake Superior, Ojibwe. I'd like to actually kind of shift our, our discussion a little bit into, and I think it's important to acknowledge that this is hard to sort out. Like, on the one hand, as Native people, we get to change over time too. We don't have to look like we just stepped off the set from Dances with Wolves to be authentic native people, right? Um, there's been some big changes going on just in the past few years, even here in Minneapolis. And I, I think a lot of people outside of the native experience don't understand even our demography. Like, you know, when they hand me the microphone and find out that, like, my relatives have been buried in the same place longer than America's been a country, and I can step out the front door to my house in northern Minnesota, and all the grandparents are within 10 minutes of the front door for my kids. And, but prior to relocation, 8% of Native people are off-reservation, and today the majority of the enrolled tribal citizenry lives off-reservation. 72%. 70-plus percent of you know, the self-identified Native population lives off-reservation, and the experience is very urban. And my personal experience is not the same as every other Native person's personal experience. And we saw a pretty significant event happen here with homelessness in the Twin Cities area that was significantly an Indigenous experience connected to relocation. And even though many of the tribes have, in many areas have been setting up urban offices and trying to outreach to their citizenry, we saw an intervention or the beginning of an intervention from Red Lake. What do you all know about that? And what does that tell you about where we might go from here to build the bridge between urban and reservation homelands and try to provide people with access to genuine financial and institutional and structural support, but also to language, culture, healing, and community. A lot of the elders that were elders visiting here or coming from northern Minnesota, coming to the cities when I was a child and when I was an, a young adult or even adolescent, they, they spoke about, you know, our need to go home or our need to stay connected. And, we, you know, we really understood that. But I think... Um, I think in that process of us being here and having and choosing to stay here was a shift in how we began to 
reclaim the things that made us strong as indigenous people. So for myself, in the 70s, I remember the discrimination from people that lived on the reservation. Oh, you're an urban Indian. Yes, I'm an urban Indian, but I'm learning my culture. Yes, I'm an urban Indian, but I'm learning my spirituality. Yes, I'm an urban Indian, but I'm learning my language. And now that's different. Now I don't feel that same discrimination as a person that can be um, culturally aware and culturally helpful. I don't feel that same discrimination. Before my son was born, in this gym right across this um, ramp right here, we had a, a Madea Lodge. It was the first time, I think, that in Minneapolis there was a, a Madea Lodge that stood on this, on this land uh, in 1999. Um, we had uh, winter ceremonies here. And a lot of the elders were like, oh, wait a minute, we shouldn't be doing that. And uh, even some of, our, some of our elders from our lodge were saying, well, wait, that's in the city. And I said, well, and I as a spokesperson, a young spokesperson said, that's where half of us are. And they're like, okay, <laughs> you know? And so it actually happened. And so I think like those are the kinds of things that really um, create that safety, create that spiritual access. And, I, and today I feel that that's one of the main things in the work that I do. The main thing that people need is to have spiritual access. They need to have spiritual access in order to have spiritual healing, in order to have you know, psychological, you know, even spiritual, physical healing. They need to have some aspect of that higher power, no matter what it is, they need to have that. And so for us to be able to provide that um, here at some level at all is really important. Yeah. I think resources um, have been so scarce, and they still are. Um, that, and, and, there's, and part of our historical trauma has been those that left our reservations have felt you know, different at times. There's been a, um, a sense of otherness that has come about from, you know, even though people left because of relocation and other policies, it's still an us and them kind of thing that sometimes has developed. And part of it is just how scarce resources are. We don't have enough to take care of, you know, the way the government allocates resources goes to, to tribes, to reservations. So, you know, the amorphous, so to speak, you know, groups in, in cities have, have had a hard time with resources. No one knows that better than folks that run this place and, and similar services. Um, and, but I think that, you know, as was said, you know, sort of the outset here that um, we're re recognizing that most of us don't live on reservations anymore and we have to take care of the people here. Research is clear. You know, we've not only, not only studied the hard things, the tragedies, the stress, the trauma, but starting to, to, to study what helps people to thrive, any people. And we know that connection, we know that social support, we know that, um, that a sense of knowing who you are, you all have talked about that clearly. Um, these are things that absolutely strengthen uh, people. And even if people don't have the exact same version anymore of, 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 of a spiritual point of view, but being open to you know the, the things that have spiritual meaning to to people um, wherever they are, um, so being able to reach out to to other Native people wherever they are, rural, urban, um, on the res or not, um, is just critical to um, to bringing back that sense of knowing who we are and connection um, to ourselves, to our communities, to 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 higher power. Um, these are actually critical to to healing. Let's drill in a little deeper on healing with regard to relocation and historical trauma. And 
I'm interested in knowing a little bit more about what you're doing and how you're trying to make that happen in your circles. Did you want to take a stab at it, Anne, what you're doing with Indian Health Service and in, in your work? Sure. Healing is such a big and, and wonderful word and, and has so many components to it. And sometimes we start out by talking about things that wouldn't be there if you were healing. And, 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 th and that is useful. And I can start with some of the things, you know, what we see so much is, you know, of course, is poverty and food insecurity, stress and trauma, like we've been talking about. These are things that, that you know, wound us. They can also be the source of strength, you know, as we've also sort of talked about. But we obviously want to minimize those things as much as we possibly can. Um, and they have huge effects on the current generation. And we now know biologically, psychologically, how that gets passed along. So in our work with, like in our diabetes programs, we run the, uh, the Special Diabetes Program for Indians grant program. And instead of just looking at diabetes as just, you know, diet and exercise, beat people over the head about that constantly is your only tool in your toolbox, we're encouraging um, our grantees to look at the wider picture and to do seed preservation and cultural connection between elders and youth and doing community gardens, to do early life home visiting and improve the, you know, the, the parenting and the emotional, you know, health of, of children because that has effects down the road on things like diabetes as we've been talking about. So, you know, actively trying to encourage tribes to use all of their creativity um, to, to look at this in the, in the largest sense of, of trying to heal from, from this disease that has taken such a toll on our people. Mm -hmm. And I, I think it's something that, you know, people outside are looking to us and realizing that we still have a sense of community in ways that don't always exist in other, other, other communities. Um, and uh, when we look at how we've made progress on things like some of our health issues, it's been because we don't just look at one person and their health. That's important, but we look at the whole community. And if someone's not making it in for their medical appointments, go out and, and work with them. Encourage the community to, to, to rally around that person. It's seeing health in the larger sense and also outside of just the medical sense. All of these are components of this larger thing, you know, that relate to healing for not only individuals, but for whole communities. It really comes down to, it comes down to love. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Recently, I completed um, a five-week doula training in Canada. And one of the very important pieces of the, the work for those uh, women who were of all different ages, uh, some were Métis, some were, some were Cree, some were Anishinaabe Ojibwe, the thing that struck me in my healing work with them is that every single one of them had been either raped, sexually molested as a child, or sexually assaulted in their lifetime. Mm -hmm. And what, because for me, healing is a spiritual measure, a ceremonial measure, but it's also with dignity. It's also with trust. And so for me, healing is safety. Safety for those individuals that disclose to me as their trainer. And so they have, they have started that healing journey. Maybe they were already on a healing journey at some point, but everybody is essentially on a different piece of that road of healing or toward healing. And so that is how I approach it in my work. And I think that, and the reason that I asked them to go on that healing journey with me was that because in order for them to support a woman in delivery that may be blocked, they have to be able to have that conversation. They have to be able to 
work with her where she's at and how do they do that if they're not like a hollow bone to to carry that work forward so that that's something that that has to happen I think for for the work that you know that type of work so I think all of us in this room are on some in some way on a healing journey and we may not be at the same place but we certainly are as human beings um, trying to be as healthy as we can right and there's no silver bullet solution right. on healing, but the things that I see really having a powerful impact on a lot of people, healing can take place in many different ways and forms, and different kinds are going to resonate and work better for different people, but learning an indigenous language is a healing act. Yes. Learning how to go harvest wild rice is a healing and decolonizing act. Getting a native name is a powerful healing and decolonizing act and owning that and centering that in your identity. Mm -hmm. um, there are so many things. And seeing even in, in urban areas like this, a really concerted effort to try to provide more opportunity and more cultural access. It's not just things that are happening on reservations, although there's a lot going on there too. But we're seeing you know, a merging of... Um, disciplines and fields. I know at Malax, for example, they'll have spiritual leaders with an office in the clinic and people can show up and go through a regular medical regimen and they can see a medicine man or a medicine woman and, and get help healing, coaching and advice and things like that. And so it's a much more holistic approach. And now with you know, Indian Health Service operating clinics in many urban areas that had been relocation you know, designated relocation sites, I see lots of potential. We are, we're, even here in the Twin Cities, there are efforts, you know, to have Ojibwe and Dakota medium education available. And there's nothing as powerful for a parent than to try to give a gift to their child, even though they're learning right along with their child to rehabilitate community cohesion and intergenerational transmission of cultural knowledge and all of those things buoy not just the individual and their journey, but the whole community. Um, I'm by training a child psychologist, and so we actually have a uh, treatment protocol, a clinical treatment protocol that's trauma-focused, um, evidence-based. It's called Honoring Children, Mending the Circle, and it's to treat uh, child trauma as well as work with parents or other caregivers that is a therapeutic approach to healing of, of trauma. So that's a, a therapeutic uh, approach. But I think that there's a lot of other therapeutic things that are um, helpful, like you were saying, you know. So whether it's running, whether it's writing, um, what are those things that helps to firm that foundation of those aspects of that individual. And I was, I was thinking, you know, one of the Cheyenne teachings, and also uh, Kato's, but one of the Cheyenne teachings especially, is that um, you call a child's name four times. So you, um, you know, like you call him, Ahanis, come in now, it's time to eat supper. You know, Ahanis, I called you, you know, uh, it's time for supper. You know, Ahanis, did you hear me? Can you come in now? You know, we're gonna sit down to eat. Ahanis, you know, please, listen to your, your mother, you know, we're, we wanted to sit down to eat. So you call a child four times. And you think about it, the reason you call a child four times is because of the spiritual, the emotional, the physical, and the intellect. 
So you call because I'm sure that many of you have been doing something and you might leave it, but you're still thinking about it. Or um, maybe you're driving and all of a sudden you realize that you have passed three exits and you're thinking, oh, here's where I need to turn. And so uh, these teachings that have been here for a long time that tells us that, that we think, we feel, you know, we have our physical body and we have our spiritual body. And that each one of those have different healing uh, needs. So any therapeutic approach needs to have all aspects of that. And um, so I was in Alaska and they were talking about child well-being. So my, my question to them was, how do you define child well-being in terms of, you know, what would be those things that would make certain that a child would get everything that they would need. And um, so a lot of times you think, well, you know, a good education, you know, having parents and, uh, you know, so just, def just different definitions of child well-being. But what the native Alaskans said, dried salmon. Child well-being would be defined by dried salmon because that would mean that as a family, they went out to fish camp that they had the opportunity to tell the stories, that they had an opportunity to talk about safety. They had got an opportunity to tell the stories of the water, of the fish, of the land. They had an opportunity to you know, work through any kind of difficulty they might have had with, with each other or um, you know, with other family members or generations of you know, whatever. And so they would have this opportunity uh, to be together and to take care of that those difficulties that were there, and that would be that healing process. Hmm. So as we think about our indigenous teachings, it's about, you know, bringing all of that together because it's not a simple, oh, yeah, you know, making sure the kids are in school. Thank you. Yeah. Now we're at the American Indian Center in Minneapolis, and we have a room with many indigenous people here with various levels of direct experience with relocation and historical trauma who have questions for our panel or things to share. If you are Native and want to share your tribal affiliation, that's welcome too. I'm Michelle. Thank you so much for sharing your experiences. Um, I am an educator and I am just wondering what you recommend. I know you started talking about this with your healing. Um, what do you recommend as far as what we can do as school districts in the classrooms um, as far as getting that healing going? Right now, we're spending a lot of money on things that are not working. So what can we do to try and help make it work? You need to get a hold of uh, Ramona Kiddo because she has developed so much for the schools and um, it's available to all the Minnesota schools and that would be very ideal to start at that point. Yeah, I could add maybe just a little bit. It's really interesting to me, but the metrics we use to evaluate our education system are state-mandated tests in academic English and math. And in those tests, the top seven states in America are Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan, Iowa, North Dakota, and so forth. And the bottom seven states in racially predictable disparities in education are the very same states. So among the things happening is that the whiter the states 
and the whiter the teaching core and the whiter the curriculum, the better the white students do and the worse that everybody else does. So the more we can do to make our educational systems and institutions places where everyone can learn about themselves as well as the rest of the world, the better everyone's going to do. It's not all about the poverty, although economics impacts things plenty because we got some districts with $4,000 per pupil and some with $40,000 per pupil, and we blame it on the teachers and the poverty of the students when we don't fund the schools equitably. That's a contributor, sure. But there's a lot we can do in our house to do better at that and as a gift not just to those people from marginalized groups but to our white citizenry who are going to have to know how to navigate a world, a country, where there will be no racial majority group for most of their lifetimes. We have to do better. If I could add to that, so from a cultural perspective, that's all wonderful. Um, and the other part is, um, obviously, teachers are dealing with I mean, everyone has had trauma. You no know, human being gets out of childhood without some degree of it. Others have just had more of it. And obviously there's, so, um, there's difficulties for children from all kinds of different backgrounds, but depending on how much trauma they've experienced with self-regulation and um, the ability to, to concentrate. I mean, if you've come from, you know, in the morning where you felt threatened by your stepfather or something, and you come in the way the brain works, is you're not going to be able to focus for a while. You just can't. So um, I know a lot of school districts are starting to teach teachers about adverse childhood experiences and about how to help with some of the healing around self-regulation and, and safety and, and the other things that relate to the kid's ability to learn in school and to do well in life. So for children of all backgrounds, but especially from communities that have experienced tremendous trauma, like Native communities. Not all Native kids have, but too many have. Um, but being able to um, understand that. The Menominee tribe has been doing some wonderful things um, in their schools to, um, to try and work on this and to help kids to tune into where they're at with their emotional state and, and to, instead of just punishing, you know, acting out behavior, seeing it for the symptom that it is, you know, of the deeper things. So, so in addition to all the cultural things, all of this um, that relates to understanding how trauma works in kids and in teachers, because teachers are going to have their own responses back to that. It's going to trigger. There's a whole lot of change that can happen in, in schools. Um, I encourage you to, if you haven't already seen the, the movies Paper Tigers and Resilience, uh, that Jamie Redford's film company has done. Those give good examples of of different approaches, but I would check out the Menominee Tribe won a Robert Wood Johnson Foundation um, Culture of Health Prize for all they're doing in their community to try and transform trauma into healing and, and including in their schools. I'll just interject as well. At the Red Schoolhouse, I attended there from the seventh grade to 12th grade, and I could count on every Monday morning ceremony. It was circle time, we held our tobacco, we even had a little fire <laughs> right in the building. Uh, <laughs> you know, that was, uh, it was an old building, but we were, really, I guess the staff were really Didn't careful. Didn't have sprinklers. We were all right. We were all right. But so I, I, I had that in my life and I could count on it. I could count on there being quiet. I could count on there, uh, there being singing. I could count on people, you know, sharing a prayer and I could count on that fire to put my tobacco in for my prayers. And so as a child, that was important to me. Leaving on a Friday, before everyone got on the bus, I could count on 
the same thing, sending everybody home with that. So that's, um, I think it's, it, it has evolved, you know. Um, I think a lot of indigenous tribal schools and also other urban areas do that now too in the school systems. But I know that we, we did that without fail and that was a, a big help to our, all of our students and the staff. Um, Buju, um, my name is Anthony Staley. I am um, an enrolled member of the Oneida Nation in Wisconsin. But I was born and raised here in Minneapolis, first generation urban native, I guess. But my mother was from White Earth and my father was from Red Lake. And now that with the passing of the law, I'm officially half Red Lake. So I get to enroll there if I want to, which is kind of cool. So the, the conversation has been really rich for me because I think about like all of the effects that relocation had on me and my family, you know, my mother and my my grandparents moving from White Earth to here when she was a young girl and and then growing up in Minneapolis and, you know, my family and my, my entire extended family system was very richly involved in, like, AIM and this, my mother was the president of the Indian Center for years and years and... Mm-hmm. And I also had this thing where my my mom sent us away to boarding school, uh, and then we sort of kind of moved between South Dakota boarding school, Minneapolis, and then back and forth between there and Wisconsin or Milwaukee. And my earliest memories of like sort of like just kind of being all over the place, like all over the Midwest, right? I think one of the things that became really kind of a challenge for me to begin to understand. And I kind of like, it became really crystallized when I started to raise Dakota boys. I adopted Dakota boys about 12 years ago. And I was living in Seattle. And as soon as they arrived, I was like, I started having this feeling like, oh, I got to go home to Minnesota. So then I had to spend some time thinking like, well, what is that about? Or like, what is, what is home? I was I'm from these places, and I spent some time in all these places, but Minneapolis was my home, and I had to come back here, and I had to come back to this place. And and part of it was, like, I had to raise my children around their relatives. They had to know Dakota land. They had to know Dakota language. They had to be around their, their ancestors and, the, and their relatives. That was really, really deeply important to me. But I also didn't really... I underestimated the critical need for me to be back in this place. And even before, I think even now, tonight, I underestimated the importance of that journey back to sort of a kind of completing a healing circle for me. Because this place is replete with traumatic events for me, right? Like I can tell you a bunch of stories about this place, this very building I'm in, and all the things that kind of happened to me here. But so what is it about our, our sense of place and that what that means to us as Native people about, about our well-being as well. Like we belong someplace, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not just this specific place on this piece of dirt. It's about there's so much more to that. And so I'm kind of interested in the panel's sort of discussion about like, well, how does that relate to also a healing journey and, and our, our sense of well-being and identity and who we are in the world and There's so much to say about that. I, I think for non-Indigenous people, whether the process was voluntary, involuntary, or under duress, there was a process of disconnecting from motherland and mother tongue that, that has at least a latent 
sadness or effect on them too. But for native people, indigenous people, there's more than a vestigial remnant of, of something else, access to something else. And we're not as far removed from connection to place, which is not just grounding, but I think really much deeper. And listening to your comments, which I, I thought were really great, I was thinking about a book I had read about the black experience in being disconnected from homeland. It's called Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome by Joy DeGruy. And among the things that happens with her, she goes on a sojourn back to Africa. She's having a conversation with elders in Lesotho and they have to have translators. And she introduces herself as an African-American woman and the translators go off for like half an hour and can't even understand her. I said, no, because to them, American meant white which is also an interesting side conversation. But they say, but that's not who you are. You're African. You're just one of the lost ones. You've been gone for a few hundred years. So welcome home. And so the reconnecting to place was part of the healing journey. And I, I have white people I've met who've gone on a sojourn back to Ireland and like had catharsis and healing out of that. And for us too, although what the place is may be different for different people and can be in an urban place, the connection to place and community is vital in healing. Mm -hmm. I relate to that really well. All of my children's placentas are buried here in the urban area. It's funny, I, was, I moved um, last year to a little home by Beaver Lake, which is east. <laughs> and I called my daughter. I was like, so excited. And she was like, so where's this house at? It's by Beaver Lake. She's like, okay, but where's Beaver Lake? That's where your placenta is buried. <laughs> She's like, oh. <laughs> you know, but here I am. I'm like so excited to be able to like a block and a half walk away and see that piece of land, you know, 25 years ago where I buried her placenta. I mean, you know, it's like, so I understand that. But I think it's not just place and land, but I think it's like who you grew up with. Like there's such a rich community here. Um, there is like a feast after feast, pow after pow. I mean, ceremony after ceremony. There's, there's all of that that has happened with the living, breathing Anishinaabeg of today, right? And that's... And I see myself in that, like for my life, I see what has happened over a period of time here and I connect with that because I was here and I lived through that. My um, second husband was a pipe carrier. So he made Cheyenne Earth. And that allows us to have that connection. Mm -hmm. But Earth, to me, I... I you know, got to touch history because my great-grandmother, like, was born in the um, 1870s, and, you know, she was there for the first 25 years of my life. And so, you know, I, I always say I touched history. And um, when we were growing up, she would go out in the uh, springtime and pick up a fresh dirt clod that had been, you know, turned over and... Um, she would pick it up and she would taste it. And she would say, this is who we are. And I still uh, can taste that dirt, you know, even though it's been a long, long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> 
So, it's, so I think it, it's not just the location, but it's that, you know, who you connect with and the meaningfulness of those relationships and what uh, you have been told and what you tell yourself. And, um, you know, I'm glad my grandkids are being raised in their homeland, so. There's no way to exhaust a conversation this important. I wanted to say, Adamia, Pinigigi, Miigwech, thank you to Dolores Subia Bigfoot. She is Caddo of Oklahoma and affiliated with the Northern Cheyenne Tribe of Montana. She's director of the Indian Country Child Trauma Center and Native American programs at the University of Oklahoma College of Medicine. And Doreen Day, she lives in St. Paul but is from Net Lake on the Boys Fort Reservation. She's a Medeque and midwife teaching and training traditional Anishinaabe practices around the upper Midwest and Canada. And Ann Bullock, who is Chief Clinical Consultant of Family Medicine at the Indian Health Service and Director of the Division of Diabetes Treatment and Prevention. She's a member of the Fond du Lac Band of Lake Superior Ojibwe. Thank you to the Minneapolis American Indian Center for hosting Spotlight on Indigenous Relocation from Call to Mind, American Public Media's initiative to foster a new conversations about mental health. This program was produced by Sam Chu, with special thanks to Max Nesterak, Catherine Winter, Monica Brain, Laura Reller, Jacob Maldonado, Medina, John Hernandez, Kaveng, and Babette Apland. I'm Anton Troyer. This is APM, American Public Media. Miigwech. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.